If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I had a wonderful time last week, uh, Reformation Sunday, preaching about the Word of God, right? We saw at the end of chapter 3, as Paul gave Timothy his tool, his pastoral tool, if you will. This tool was the Scriptures, and we saw that the Scriptures are God-breathed. They are breathed out by God. We saw that the scriptures are able to equip the pastor for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the pastor is sufficiently and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so last week, what we essentially saw was Paul handing Timothy his ministry tool. He, he handed Timothy his ministry weapon, if you will. And now in chapter 4, Paul's going to tell Timothy how to use it. So here's the tool. Here's what it's capable of doing. So here's what to do with it. And so this is what we're looking at today is Timothy's charge, if you will. And we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. If you would please follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So those are the two verses we're going to spend our time on, and it begins in a sort of startling manner, right? It begins in a very solemn manner. I charge you. He's giving Timothy his pastoral charge here, and he doesn't just charge him, but he reminds him, I'm charging you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So he, he sort of heaps all of these solemn, heavy things onto this charge. He's essentially telling you, Timothy, I'm going to give you a commission and a command, and I remind you that the omnipresent Father is watching you in your ministry always. And I would like to remind you that what you do with this charge, you will give an account to Jesus who the Father has given judgment to. When he appears, you will stand before him and you will give an account to Christ for what you did with your ministry in, in the presence of the ever-present God the Father, and in light of the judgment that is coming, and in light of the kingdom that you are called to inherit, these are all of the motivations that I am heaping upon you to show you how serious this charge is. This is a serious and solemn charge. And so he begins by essentially describing, in brief and general terms, the pastoral commission, the pastoral job description. And the first one he says is to preach the word. The first thing a pastor is supposed to do is preach. I, I take the verse one in the beginning of chapter two, or beginning of verse two, is it's kind of like, uh, you know, the court, court of law. When, when, when a, someone's about to give a testimony, um, you know, maybe David, maybe you can help me. Do they, do they still have to put their hand on a Bible? Is that still? Sometimes they, they don't have to, but it's common. And, and what is it? I, I don't know if this is still the formula, but at least according to all the movies and stuff, what is it that people typically have to say before they, uh, you know, give their witness? They say, I, 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 I promise to, to say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Is that still what they say? Great. The, to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why do they say it? Why don't they just say a promise to tell the truth? Well, I think it's because we as human beings are very cunning. And it's amazing the way we're able to deceive and lie and manipulate even with truthful statements. 
So what's implied in the statement, tell the truth, they explicitly elaborate on. Here's what we mean when we say to tell the truth. It means you're going to tell the whole truth. You're not going to leave important bits out. And you're going to tell nothing but the truth. You're not going to mix it with fabrications and lies and misleadings. And I think that we can read, preach the word in that way. That if we were to unpack it, preach the word, Paul is, well, what, well, what does that mean? That means preach the whole word and nothing but the word. The truth the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Paul is saying, in the presence of God, preach the whole word, nothing but the word, so help you God. Right? That's, that's at least how they do the movies. I promise it's the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's what's going on here. I charge you to preach the word, the whole word, nothing but the word, so help you God. He just reverses the order, so help you God. Preach the word, the whole word, nothing but the word. And I want us to take some time on this because this is really important in our day and age. Timothy, his first duty given by Paul in the presence of God the Father and God the Son is called to preach the word. He's not called to preach some of the word. He's not called to preach part of the word. He's called to preach the word. And we know that this connects back to what we just read last week, the infallible God-breathed scriptures. Timothy is called to be a Bible preacher. He is called to preach the Bible. And first and foremost, this is implied, he's called to preach the whole Bible. As a matter of fact, Paul told him this more explicitly earlier on before they departed. Keep your marker here and turn to Acts chapter 20. This was a personal commission that Paul gave to all of the elders at Timothy's church, not just Timothy alone. In verses 1 through 25, Paul is essentially telling them that he's going to leave and they're never going to see him again. And then look at what he says in verse 26, sort of defending his pastoral ministry at Ephesus where Timothy is now pastor. He says this in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. So what makes Paul innocent of blood? He didn't kill anybody? Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul knew God has revealed, he's given me revelation, and it's my job to give you all of it. And Paul saw this as being so important that if he did hold it back, he was guilty of having blood on his hands. Right? Maybe a more crass way of saying this, it is spiritual murder to intentionally withhold revelation from people. It is spiritual murder to say, listen, God has given me this. He's revealed this, this whole counsel of me. He's got all of these parts and all of these ways that glorify him. But you know what? This stuff over here, those edges are just too rough. They're really not going to want to hear that. The stuff over here, but this is really encouraging and positive. So we'll just preach this encouraging stuff. That's not the whole counsel of God. That's part of the counsel of God. And Paul says, if I only preach part of the counsel of God, I've murdered you. You see, Timothy is not called to preach some of the word. He's not called to preach the encouraging bits of the word. He's called to preach the word. The whole word. Now, this does not mean there's a lot of word here. Right? A pastor could preach for 50 years and likely never make it through the whole Bible. So this is not to say that if there's a specific book that you've never gotten to or you've never heard from the pulpit, your pastor is a spiritual murderous coward. 
but it's this mentality, it's the preaching mentality that the preacher takes the pulpit knowing I am here to just give them what God has given. I am not overly concerned with how it's going to hit. I'm not overly concerned with, with what they're going to say or do to me. It is my job to give them the whole counsel of God. Not some of it, not parts of it, not the easily digestible. Timothy's called to preach the word, the whole word. And notice he's also called to preach nothing but the word. He's called to preach nothing but the word. Timothy, it would make no sense when Paul says preach the word for Timothy to say, okay, and what else? What else should I preach? Right? He would have told you if he wanted something else. Timothy is called to preach the word, the whole word, and nothing but the word. He's not given some oral tradition he's supposed to be preaching from. He's not given some, some secular literature he's supposed to be preaching from. No, he is called to preach the God-breathed scriptures, and that's all Paul calls him to preach. And I would argue that this truly, truly is important for us in our day and age, because if I may be so blunt, I think that this is lacking in many churches in evangelical Christianity in America today. As a matter of fact, in my last context, there was a church in our community that I was very cautious of, and I had a friend who left that church, and I asked him about his time there, and he mentioned that the female pastor of that church on multiple occasions would say, you know what, I, I read a poem this week, and it was just so beautiful and so lovely that we're going to take our time today to read the poem. Timothy wasn't called to preach poems. Timothy was not called to preach poems. Timothy was not called to preach his own opinions. He was not called to say, listen, I've got a lot of experience in life, and so I'm going to give it to you today. Close your Bibles. Close your Bibles and just, just listen to all this wisdom that I've accumulated. I mean, we do listen to the wisdom of others, but that's not what call, Timothy is called to mount the pulpit to do. When Timothy preaches, he is not there to preach poems. He's not there to preach his best experience and advice and his own personal thoughts and opinions. One thing that's relevant for us today, we're not called to preach movies. I can't tell you how many churches I've seen advertising church at the movies. Church at the movies this week. And it's this incredible draw to get people in and what they end up doing is they show movie clips from popular movies and they explain the plot of the movie and they talk about how great the movie is and then they work some biblical themes into there. Timothy was not called to preach the Lion King. He was not called to preach the word. Notice, he's not even called to preach his own alleged revelations. Right? I hear this all the time as I listen to famous preachers and famous pastors around the country saying stuff like this. I got a word for you today and this is what God told me to tell you. You know, God told me to say this today and this is what God gave me. And I've, I've just got a word that God placed in my heart today. Timothy was not called to, to preach the word placed on his heart today. Timothy was not called to preach the voice in his head. Timothy was not called to preach to the best of his ability, this is what I think God is saying to me today. Timothy was called to preach the God-breathed scriptures. Not poems, not movies, not literature, not the voice in my head, the word. Pastors preach the word of God. The whole word and nothing but the word, so help them God. Timothy was called to preach the word. But here's the thing, I would encourage you when you meet your, your pastors and your elders to not call them preachers. This is a common thing, he's the preacher, that's the preacher, this is my preacher. 
Pastors preach. They're called to preach. That's their charge. They preach. But as we see, there's more to their job description than preaching. He tells them, on top of preaching the word, he is to what? To be ready in season and out of season. Well, what does that mean? That's just essentially Paul's way of saying that the pastoral position, Timothy, is not something you clock out of. It's, it's not a nine to five. Your job is to minister to your people and sometimes people need ministering to beyond the hours of nine o'clock a.m. to five o'clock p.m. Timothy doesn't get to live his personal life in rebellion as long as when he's actually on the clock, then all of a sudden now it's time to be a holy man of God. He needs to be ready to do his job in season and out of season. This is not to say that it's entirely inappropriate for a pastor to take a vacation or dedicate specific time to his family. That's, that's being a little hyper-literalistic with it. But the essential element here is that this is a, a life call on top of a vocation which really many of our vocations are, not just pastoral ones. But Timothy is supposed to be ready to be a pastor at all times. In season, out of season, when it's convenient, when it's not. He's always on the clock, so to speak. And then he's given this little triad of, uh, of duties. He is called to reprove, to rebuke, and exhort. Reproof and rebuke are very, very similar um, terminology, one is to sort of reprimand or identify sin, the other is to actually seek to exterminate it. They're, they're very, very similar, but you notice that this, this, this threefold reprove, rebuke, exhort, or your, your translations might maybe say the word encourage, they, they've, they almost directly parallel what Paul just got done saying the scriptures are capable of doing. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, for training in righteousness. So the scriptures are capable of giving you the wisdom and the authority and the God-breathed identification that you need to reprove and correct. So what's he supposed to do now? Chapter four, reprove and correct. <laughs> what the scriptures equip Timothy to do is what Timothy needs to be doing. This is what the scriptures are for, so utilize them. So Timothy is using the word to preach it and he's using the word to reprove and he's using the word to rebuke and he's using the word to exhort. This is his job description. He is to identify sin in his congregation, identify sin in himself. He's to identify bad theology in his congregation, identify bad theology in himself. And it is his job and the other elders that are with him to reprove these things, to rebuke these things, and then to exhort or encourage people into correction. You see, it's not enough to just simply tell someone that's wrong, right? We, we, we want to show and lead and help people see here's what's right, whether it's a way of thinking, whether it's theology or a way of living. It is Timothy's job to reprove and to rebuke and to correct, exhort, or encourage his congregation into holiness, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But then Paul says something that's really, really very important here. He sort of gives Timothy the manner in which he reproves, rebukes, and exhorts. Because if, if we just take that by itself, the, the English connotations of that kind of make Timothy's job sound uh, a little depressing. Right? Like, you're a pastor, what do you do? I reprove and rebuke people. That's what I'm going to start saying when I meet a stranger. Oh, you're a pastor, so what's life look like for you? I just reprove and rebuke my congregants. That's what I do. That's my job description. That sounds kind of harsh, right? Like, who wants to sign up for this job 
where it's my job just to reprove and rebuke people. And I got to be ready to do it anytime. So midnight, give me a call, I'll rebuke you. But that's really not how we ought to be looking at these words. Right? Because look at what he says. Reproof, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. With complete patience and teaching. These two elements are so important to the pastoral duties of reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. If either one of them is lacking, the church, the people involved, will not be edified. He, he tells them with all patience, right? Timothy is to take these verbs like rebuke and reproof. He is to take them and he is to adorn them. He is to cloak them with patience, And I think that word in and of itself brings to mind a lot of other qualities like gentleness and compassion. It's it's hard to be patient without gentleness and compassion and understanding. In other words, Paul is, Timothy is here recognizing that sanctification for every one of us, myself, Timothy, every one of us, sanctification is a long road trip. And for most of us, it's a slow journey. That to be corrected and reproved, to, to, to change whether it's the way we're thinking or our lifestyles, our behaviors, these are things that we need to be patient with each other on. They don't, they don't just happen overnight. Uh, last week, Pastor Jesse sort of comedically gave a little pop culture reference and he told me, uh, he said, I'm gonna make this pop culture reference so that Colin doesn't have to, but I'm gonna make it anyway. There's, uh, what he was referring to last week is right now I'm witnessing in our own culture, there's um, a famous rapper who has allegedly come to know the Lord. He's been professing his faith in Jesus and he's been writing very explicitly Christian lyrics and the Christian community kind of doesn't know what to do with this, right? This guy is a big deal. As a matter of fact, I won't get into all the reasons as to why he is so popular, but perhaps this will summarize all of it. His net worth is estimated to be over $3 billion. That's B, not an M. That's a B. $3 billion. This guy is very famous, very influential, and if you knew him before his conversion, he was like many of us in this room. He was a sinner. But because he was famous, he was a public sinner, and so Christians, what do we do with this? Is this, just a, is this just a fad, a phase? What kind of a Christianity is he involved with? I don't know. I mean, it's hard for us. We, we, many want to kind of keep it at arm's length before we dive in. And, and I think there's some healthy discernment there. But one of the things that I've also seen in the culture that makes me really pity him is these incredible expectations that I don't know where they're coming from. Right, I, I see people say stuff like this. Well, unless he immediately starts saying this, this, and that and rebukes and rejects all that he said over there, there, and there, then I won't believe it. And I see people nitpicking every interview he does. Well, he said this, and that's not very Christian. Well, look, he's still doing this, and that's not very Christian. You know, I just, again, I don't know if he's saved. But here's what I do know. I certainly hope those people at least give a little bit more patience to the new believers in their own church than they're willing to give to celebrity believers. Like, are we expected three months after our professed conversion to, to be perfect? You see, what I want us to have is patience. Yes, do we, do we reprove people when, they need to, when there needs to be reproved? Do we rebuke each other when we need to be rebuked? Do we have to correct each other? Yes, and we should do those things. But look at what Paul emphasizes here. Can we be patient? Can we be understanding? You see, Timothy is not called to be this tyrannical bully walking around his congregation with a spiritual whip. 
Why aren't you better? Why aren't you better? Get better. Get better. Reprove. No, it's, it's patient. It's gentle. It's loving. It's compassionate. Timothy is called to understand that sanctification is a lifelong process. That a year from now, by God's grace, we will not be the people we are today. But a year from now, we still won't be who we ought to be. Timothy is called to be patient, to be gentle and understanding. There is a loving way, in other words, to rebuke one another. There's a gentle and understanding, compassionate, patient way to rebuke one another. So he's not just called to rebuke and exhort. He is called to do so with patience. But he is also called to do with teaching. One of the qualifications of an elder is they are able to teach. This element has to be there too. And here's what's going on here. Reproof and rebuke are meaningless if it's not true, correct, theologically accurate reproof and rebuke. So in other words, Timothy's job is not to say, you're wrong and I'm right and how do I know this? I'm the pastor. Deal with it. I'm the man of God. Deal with it. Right? There's no teaching element there. It's just arbitrary reproof. It's just arbitrary, subjective reproof. No, there needs to be teaching. Timothy needs to be able to open up his Bible and show them, listen, I don't think what you believe on this subject is true. Can we walk through the scriptures together? I don't think this way that you're living is godly. I don't think it's healthy. Can can I teach you why? You see, this takes us again back to the scriptures implicitly. Timothy's reproof and rebuke needs to be with teaching. His congregation needs to understand why he thinks the way he thinks, why he's saying the thing he's saying. It's, again, it's not just arbitrary authoritarianism. Listen to me. I was put here by God. Obey me. That's not the pastoral office. It's patient and it's didactic. It's teaching so Timothy is called to open up his word with people and to patiently and compassionately help them into holiness, help them into proper theology. So that is the pastoral charge. That is what Timothy is called to do as a pastor. He is called to take the word and then in the presence of God in Christ Jesus in the coming kingdom, he is to preach it, He is to reprove, he is to rebuke, he is to exhort, and he is to be patient when he does this, he is to teach when he does this, and he needs to be doing this and be ready to do this at all times. That's the pastoral charge. And here's how I think we can sort of summarize it so it's not so wordy in our heads. Like what is is the pastoral charge? What is Timothy's charge? Well, this is how I think is a good way of summarizing it. Pastors use the word of God to edify the people of God. That's the pastor's duty. That's the duty of an elder board. It's to use the word of God to, uh, to edify the people of God. That word edification, edify, I think it really summarizes every element in here because edification is both, is both holiness and intellectual belief. Right? If, if you learn more about God today, you've been edified. If you repent of sins today, you're being edified. It's this all-encompassing term of progress, of growth, of of forward moving to be edified, to be maturing in our faith, to be maturing in our theology. And that has to be, as we summarize what Paul is telling Timothy here, that has to be the pastor's ultimate concern. The pastor is not called to be a CEO. 
there's no doubt that in the life of the church there are business-like functions that take place and pastors need to exercise wisdom and be able to approach those things. There's elements of, 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 of secular business world involved in the management of a church. There's nothing wrong with that. But we don't hire great CEOs. Some people do. But we are not called to hire a great CEO to lead the people of God. They are not called to be CEOs. They are not called to be charismatic, uh, energetic life coaches. They are not called to be anthropologists and marketing specialists. The pastor's duty is to love God's people. And his whole focus, his whole concern is, where's my church at? Where are they at? Everything here is involved around the people of God in forward motion. Why do we preach? Why do we teach? So that we learn. Why do we reprove? Why do we rebuke? Why do we correct? So that we change. You see, the pastor's obsession, his primary obsession is, how do I get my church from here to here? How, how, do, we, how do we know God better than we do right now? How do we love God better than we do right now? Uh, Paul says this very thing in, in 1 Thessalonians. It's amazing. He, he begins the whole first part of 1 Thessalonians by telling the church just really how great they are. He, he says, your love has been exceeding and abounding and, and you've been sharing the gospel and you've been growing. And he tells them all these great things and then he tells them, so continue to abound in those things. Right? Paul's perspective is that no local church should ever get to the place where they think, listen, we got it. We're there. You know, we're done. We're sanctified. We're, we're, we know all we can know. Uh, we're living the lives we ought to live. So things are great. We're done. Can we just meet up if we ever have a problem? That, that's not the thought process here. So it's not so much viewing every local church as this wicked, terrible group of people that just desperately needs. No, even if the local church is very healthy and very sound and very solid, the pastor's obsession and focus still needs to be, how do we abound in that even more? How do we learn even more? How do we come to know God better? How do we honor God more? It's the pastor's job to use the word of God because we cannot separate chapter four from chapter three. He just got done giving him the God-breathed scriptures which are able to equip him thoroughly for every good work and then he immediately says, so preach the word, do this, this, and that. The, the Bible and the, pastoral's commission, the pastoral commission are tethered inseparably. So he takes the word of God and then he lets it loose. He lets God's word do what only God's word can do, which is completely transform people in our thoughts, in our desires, in our behaviors. Pastors use the word of God to edify the people of God. And in conclusion, I, I want us to see how this has a direct application for all non-pastors. Because notice, as we said, everything Timothy does, he's not just doing in the air. There's someone on the other end of this. Who's he preaching to? Who's he teaching? Who's he being patient with? Who's he reproving? Who's he correcting? Who's he encouraging? There's, for Paul, and remember we saw in Acts, the, Paul was writing to a church that he once pastored. These are Paul's people. When Paul writes this, he's got names and faces on his mind. Paul knows the people that Timothy's rebuking. He knows the people Timothy's teaching. He knows the people that Timothy's serving alongside with. He knows the people, the other elders in the co church congregants who are supposed to be rebuking him, Timothy. Right, this is not abstract. 
And so the way we apply that is what this helps non-pastors do is it, is it really helps them establish two things. What are my pastoral expectations for my pastors? And what kind of a church member am I supposed to be? This text greatly helps you answer those questions. What are your expectations for a pastor? Whether it's myself or if God, for some reason, God forbid, I hope not, brings you to a new church, what are you looking for in a pastor? What's at the top of your checklist? Yeah, you'd be amazed that I've, listen, I have, I've been in, I know I'm young, but I've been in ministry a long time. And I've lived in very transitory cities a long time. I've seen a lot of people come and go. I've had a lot of conversations with new Christians, old Christians, traveling Christians. And you'd be amazed at the things that people value. People will come into a church and say they loved it and they'll give you all these compliments. But when you hear why, it's over the most trivial things. What's the most important thing about a new church if you're visiting it? There, there are lots of important things. But at the end of the day, some of the top priorities here in the list is, does my pastor preach the word? Does he spend half of his sermon showing slideshows of his beautiful family and talking about all these fun stories he had growing up? Or does he open up God's word and explain it to me? Does the pastor preach the word? Does he actually teach? Do we have a church here that's interested in my holiness or when I come to church, am I just sitting by strangers every week? People who don't, they don't know me. Is that healthy? You see, this not only sets your pastoral expectations, but it also shows you what does God expect of me as a church member, and, and here's how we can sort of go through the back door on all of these. Number one, if pastors are supposed to preach the word, what does that mean for you? You're supposed to want it. Do you love God's word? I'm not even beginning to suggest for a moment that there's never a Sunday morning you wake up and you're just skipping and heel-clicking, so excited to go to church. I, I understand that sometimes it's hard to come to church, and that's okay. But just generally speaking, I mean, does the Word of God excite us? Like, and I think that sometimes the best way to answer that is by looking at our own devotional lives. Let me just be very clear with you. My devotional life is not where it ought to be. I wake up in the morning, and you want to know what excites me? Facebook. It's almost the first thing I do in the morning. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. And a lot of times on my nightstand, my phone will be sitting on a Bible. Does the word of God excite me? Do I get excited to know we're going to hear from the true and living God this morning? We, may we be a church that loves and longs to hear the preaching and teaching of God's word. And, and above all these reprove, rebuke, and exhort, we have to ask this question, do we embrace accountability? Right? If, if Timothy is called to reprove and rebuke and exhort people, what that means is that on their end, they need to be prepared to embrace that. They ought not to find it strange or insulting to have their pastor correct them on something, to always be defensive and to always be argumentative. Are we willing to hear, whether it's from our pastors or our other church members who have the Holy Spirit of God and the scriptures with them, are we willing to hear, listen, I think there's a problem here. May we be a people that embrace accountability. We had the privilege of doing membership right before the sermon. That's part of church membership is, is these people are saying, I want you to help me grow. If there's something wrong in my life, it actually 
pleases me to know there are people who love me enough to point that out. Remember, in, in Matthew chapter 7, there's the whole judge not passage. And what so many people miss is that Jesus does not tell people not to judge in that passage. He says to remove the plank from your eye so that you can properly see and remove the plank from your brother's eye. That's what Matthew 7 says. For Jesus, it's important that brothers and sisters be able to say, but consistently say, there's a problem here. And we as a church, that's going to be painful, that's going to be uncomfortable. It's never going to be fun. I'm not saying that we should just, you know, know, you know, we, oh gosh, you know, this hurts my stomach to think of. That's okay. That's natural. Discipline and, but especially if the church is doing it the way God has called us to do it, which is patiently and understandingly, we should embrace that. So this, this has great implications for us to hunger for the word of God and to hold each other accountable, but not in a tyrannical, brunt and hurtful way, blunt and hurtful way, but to do so in patience and love for one another. You see, this text, these two little verses speak so much to what Timothy is called to do and what a church is called to be. A church that loves the word of God, a church that loves the other people in the church, and we love each other so much that we want to encourage and help each other in this journey. That is what we're here for. And so lastly, I guess I'll just say this. What this tells us is that the local church should be a blessing to us. Right? How does Paul view the local church? Well, this is an institution of people and leaders who are here to teach you and encourage you and rebuke you. The local church is functioning as this God-ordained machine to get me from point A to point B. So may we read a text like this and remember, I am so thankful that God has not commissioned me to an isolated Christianity where I am expected to be off by myself, teaching myself, rebuking myself, exhorting myself. How hard is that to do? I remember when I played football in college, the moment I quit football, I noticed it did not take long for my workout habits to die. I still go to the gym, but I go once or twice a week. When I played football, I went five days a week. And I go to the gym, but I don't walk out of there sweating and miserable, can barely walk. I'm usually pretty comfortable when I, sometimes I'll go in and it's too crowded and I'll just leave. It never happened playing football. Because there was something about that accountability structure that helped me, because I, I don't have it in me to walk into the gym and say, I'm going to push myself as hard as I possibly can today. I don't have that in me. And it's, spiritually, it's the same way. It's so hard to look in the mirror and be like, I'm going to rebuke all of my flaws today. Half the time, we don't even see our own flaws so what this text does is it reminds us of the beauty of a local church, of people with the Spirit of God in them and the Word of God in front of them coming together and patiently, gently, compassionately helping each other grow so that we're not isolated doing this by ourselves. That is what we're here for, and it is my prayer that our local church would continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, the love of the Lord, and the love of each other. And, and, and let me just remind you, again, we have to be patient. This doesn't happen overnight. I'm not expecting, oh, I preached a sermon on loving the local church, so tomorrow we're all going to be best friends and have no problem. No, it's, this is a process. We're all taking the time to get to know each other and grow together, but that's what we're here to do, to patiently, compassionately seek the Lord, seek his word, and help each other.